Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world of shoes and ships and sailing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there. Now you can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder... Tell us all about it, please. We have the best chat room. It's a great group of people there. You know, they, they always bring their own insights into whatever it is that we're discussing on the air. So I can learn a great deal from them. And we have lots of fun, too. So do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Yeah, remember that forward slash, huh? Of course. <laughs> In this week's spotlight, I want to direct your attention to the nature of confusion. Believe it or not, there are actually several different forms of confusion. First, there is the obvious, the recognition that you are confused about something, perhaps even where you are or what you've been doing. We've all read or seen some story of the person who wakes up after a drinking binge in someone else's bed and knows not where they are or who they're with. This is a state of confusion one might think of as induced confusion. Most of us have experienced confusion over some subject, perhaps the message someone was sharing with us, or some new skill set we were attempting to learn like calculus. So in this sense, confusion is a failure to understand. Then there is this state of ignorant confusion. I refer to this one again as ignorant confusion because we fail to be aware that we are confused. Indeed, we are quite certain that we have things right. As with cognitive dissonance, we are unable to witness our confusion due to our certainty that we are not confused at all. Perhaps an example or two may be helpful in clarifying what I have in mind. Let's take this simple situation. You were taught in school that at the time of Columbus, the world was believed to be flat. You may have repeated this story to your parents and or even your children. A flat earth implies that the idea of a circumference is an absolute non-starter. Okay, a friend informs you that 250 years thereabout, before Christ, the circumference of the earth was calculated with amazing accuracy. B.S., you insist. Obviously, if the earth was flat during the 1400s, no one calculated the circumference, and who could they, how could they possibly do that anyway? This makes no sense to you, so you are willing to argue this one with great vehemence. Now, the fact is, the story about a flat earth is a myth. Columbus knew well, as did everyone at that time, with any scholarly learning, that the earth was round. As such, we have two points here. The first, why were you taught the earth was flat? Why were so many of us taught this nonsense? The second, you have now become aware of how easy it is to fall into the state of ignorant confusion. You thought you were informed, but you were not. You were confident in your knowledge, but ignorant of its fallaciousness. This is ignorant confusion, for you're simply unaware that you are confused. Now, I don't want to neglect the dissonance factor, for there are those who, from our example, know both that the earth was round, yet still teach the flat earth myth. You might ask how they manage this, and the answer is most interesting. While they possess both bits of information, they fail to integrate them and thereby remain ignorant of this dissonance. When asked, you hear answers such as, Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Or better yet, Well, I thought the knowledge might have become lost. In other words, even when aware, there is an attempt to meld the two mutually exclusive ideas with some imaginary bridge. Now, why have I chosen this subject for today? The answer is simple. There is no limit to the allegations, untruths, half-truths, nonsense, and other dis- and misinformation being distributed everywhere today. 
The fact is, I recently heard several news commentators lament the, the, the pure fact that even where they are concerned, there are no editors anymore. Editors play a big role in the dissemination of truth, for among their duties is fact-checking. So whether it's a post on some networking page or a line heard on the national news, it really is all subject to fact-checking today. I have heard arguments of all sorts throughout my life, some supposedly hard fact, like brain cells begin to die in your 30s and are unable to regenerate themselves, a statement that is completely false. It doesn't seem to matter whether it's hard science or political science or everything in between. Before we take a hard, fast position on anything, we owe it to ourselves to ensure that we're not living in a state of ignorant confusion. My thoughts anyway. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I think this is a good one. It just tells you once again, you know, you need to stop and think about what it is that you're thinking about and try and figure out how much is actually real and how much you've just picked up from everyone. The fact is, society doesn't teach us these days or doesn't encourage us to think for ourselves. We're supposed to follow the crowd. We're supposed to follow the ideas. We're supposed to turn off that thinking ability because some expert out there has already done it for us. And the older I get, the more I realize there's no such thing as experts. All I'd say is think and think again and then think again about why you're thinking what you're thinking about. And you have some chance then of discovering who you are and what your own thoughts are and what your own choices are in that process. We might also, all of us, be advised to remember that we want to believe uh, what we want to believe. We tend to listen and tune into that which reinforces our opinions at any given point in time and turn off to anything that challenges us. And in that very real sense, we deny ourselves the opportunity to truly be informed. That we do. I actually make a conscious effort to do that. I will go out to view the other side of an argument. You know, if someone's fanatical about the opposite side to me, I'll go out and check it out and try and figure out why they are so keen on their side. I try to find that other answer just a process i go through that's all that's one of the things we do with our radio show okay every week i read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful last week our guest was professor anders erickson and we discussed his book peak secrets from the new science of expertise jamie wrote what a wonderful guest i so loved your show richard wrote it's important to note regarding anders work how this pattern of focused Attentive, goal-oriented, stretching applies universally to many areas of life. It is a meta-skill. Well said, Richard. Mary commented, Dr. Taylor, you and Professor Erickson are so right. Taking the arts out of school was a mistake. Now, we received several remarks uh, regarding last week's spotlight on the binds of blame. C.B. wrote, thinking how powerful those three forgiveness statements are, I wonder if the converse is true in regards to original sin and other doctrines that encourage forgiving others. But the individual is a sinner who has to ask forgiveness from an entity whom very few hear replies from. Penji wrote, when we blame, we can't accept. Moving on, Georgie wrote, I have your ending self-destructive set. At first, I listened every day for about 10 to 20 days and then intermittently. Suddenly last week, I had a huge insight that led to a massive life choice regarding a problem that has been with me since age 17. I feel certain this came about in part to the help and support provided by listening to this audio. I want to add that it was the newsletter description with ideas of how this title might work and how it might be applied to a particular type of situation that opened my eyes to the audio and to the idea of how and why I would use it. The result is exactly what I hoped for. Totally worth the investment, and thank you. All right, Ravinder, we did a couple of newsletters on self-sabotage. You write, well, more than half of those newsletters. So tell everybody how they can subscribe and begin to receive it free. Uh, yeah, it's very simple, actually. You can go to either eldentaylor.com or provocativeenlightenment.com. If you scan down the page just a little bit, you will see the big subscribe box right there. 
So right on the home pages of both provocativeenlightenment.com and eldentaylor.com. Right, do subscribe. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldentaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook, and I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show. We are our brains with Dick F. Swab, M.D., Ph.D. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Dick Schwab was director of the Netherlands Institute for Brain Research from 1978 to 2005. He is a professor of neurobiology at the University of Amsterdam. In 1985, he founded the Netherlands Brain Bank and was director until 2005. He is the leader of a research team, Neuropsychiatric Disorders, Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience, and Institute of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences. His major research interests focus on sexual differentiation of the human brain in relation to gender identity and sexual orientation, aging of the brain, Alzheimer's disease, and the neurobiological basis of depression and suicide. He has published over 560 papers in science journals, authored more than 200 chapters in books, and edited more than 60 books. He has also mentored 84 Ph.D. students, 20 of which are now full professors. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Dick Swab. Thank you very much. It's indeed our pleasure to have you join us, sir. Your book covers the evolution of the brain from our basic drives to the more spiritual essence of who we think we are. So we have... A, a, a lot to talk about. And where to begin was my first question after reviewing your material. I decided that we should begin at the beginning, that of consciousness itself. There are numerous theories regarding consciousness as existing independent of the brain, consciousness at a distance, if you will. What does your work tell us about consciousness, and what is your position on this idea that somehow there is a the brain is a transceiver, like a radio, uh, getting information from outside of the brain. Well, consciousness is um, uh, depending on brain activity and especially on the interaction of a couple of uh, brain areas like the prefrontal cortex and the uh, thalamus. Uh, it's not true that uh, we receive consciousness, the, uh, the, the activity of the nerve cell produce consciousness um, and uh, you can uh, uh, get rid of consciousness by uh, suppressing the activity of the nerve cell like uh, using anesthetics for instance so uh, do I understand you to say that consciousness is um, brain dependent it, it's totally brain dependent Okay, so when when you look at you know researchers uh, that talk about uh, near death experiences uh, or yeah. this field of parapsychology, uh, ESP, or the work of someone like Rupert Sheldrake uh, who talks about dogs that know when their masters are coming home, um, Stuart Hameroff who has identified some uh, aspect of the brain, microtubules that are um, entertaining quantum uh, information, uh, bypassing that on. What do you say about this? Well, interesting hypothesis, but no basis for it. And let's focus on uh, near-death experiences. Okay. It's possible to induce uh, near-death experiences when you stimulate the right uh, part of the brain. So uh, when the part of the brain is stimulated, uh, that is the border of the temple and the parietal cortex, then people uh, uh, on the table, on the operating table where they are conscious uh, in search and brain uh, exploration, they say, oh, my, my arms are becoming shorter, my legs are becoming shorter, I start to float. And they experience that they leave their own body. But that's just because the processing of that brain area is disturbed. And okay. at the same, uh, in the same way, you can show that uh, the uh, typical experience of a near-death uh, um, uh, uh, 
die, die, um, the tunnel uh, that is uh, bright at the end uh, can be induced by uh, preventing the blood to flow to the eye. And then the periphery of the eye is suffering first. And that means you have a black periphery and a bright uh, center. And that is the tunnel uh, with, at the end, uh, light. And so it's a uh, near-death experience. It's, an, uh, uh, it's a real experience. But it's a sign of uh, malfunction of uh, brain area, which can be um, induced in different ways. Now, some might argue, Professor, that the pure fact that you can induce this does not necessarily negate the reality that there is such a thing as an NDE. People like to talk about, you know, the classic cases of brain-dead patients who, you know, have drowned and uh, have, you know, for all intent and purposes, been flatlined for several minutes. Um, Do you think that, Well, there are are many uncontrolled... uh, uh, stories about this, um, and uh, some people hold the idea that they are really floating around, and uh, quite a number of um, um, uh, um, hospitals where uh, people in bad condition are received have put on a very high place numbers and asked uh, what number did you see when you were floating there? Nobody can uh, tell. So. There's no proof whatsoever that it's more than uh, disturbed brain action. Okay, now, one of the theories we've entertained on this show before um, links REM activity with uh, NDEs. Are you familiar with that? Uh, well, you, you better tell me what uh, was told there. Say that again, I'm sorry. Uh, please tell me what they told you then. Oh, because well, ba- basically, the, about it. Yeah, basically, the research uh, that I'm referring to um, found a correlation between uh, REM activity and uh-huh. uh, NDEs, suggesting that the NDE was but a, you know, an altered uh, uh, brainwave state, dream state, if you will. Yeah, well, uh, in, in some aspects, you can compare some of the symptoms with, with an, uh, an altered dream state. And then it's still activity of the brain, so nothing special about it. But it's activity of the brain that is changed by a lack of oxygen or by um, enormous uh, stress. And those two factors are the main uh, inducers of near-death experience. Okay, so your position, if I've got you right, is that NDEs, uh, parapsychological phenomena per se, uh, this is something that can be um, induced by the brain, has absolutely nothing to do with uh, some spiritual component. Um, No. Okay. No as in I've got it wrong or no as in yes, you agree? I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, uh, data-driven data, data information. But, that's, but I that's should wh- say that uh, the near-death experience is a real experience, and it's overwhelming for people that experience it, and they often become uh, religious after such an experience. So the experience is real, but uh, it's just brain activity, disturbed brain activity. Okay. Now... You know, one of the the popular things that we hear a lot about uh, today, especially when you deal with neurotheology, and we'll get into this more, is the notion of a God helmet. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this one. Uh, Basically, you know, the idea is that we can stimulate areas of the brain uh, and we can produce deep religious experiences artificially. True? Um, yes, uh, if uh, first in early development the religious experiences are programmed into the brain, and then you can get it out with uh, uh, stimulation in the right way on the right place. So, but people that uh, don't have this um, uh, developmental programming in in religion, uh, they might have uh, uh, different experiences not religious experiences. So you 
first should put something into the brain and then you can get it out by stimulation. Okay, now, that begs a question. If the brain is pre-wired such that we can have these religious experiences, these parapsychological experiences, etc. and so forth, uh, what on earth is the evolutionary purpose of that? I mean, some might argue that the reason it's wired that way is our creator wanted us to be able to understand that there was a dimension beyond this one. Uh, how, how do you respond to that? Well, I, I can't see any evidence for that. And uh, we all want to have explanations for everything. And that's not possible, of course. And then it's uh, very pleasant if you can uh, point uh, into the sky and tell that it's all coming uh, from there. Everything that you can't explain is coming from there. And of course, if you look around, then uh, the um, uh, uh, environment is so adapted uh, that uh, you can wonder how come, if you don't know anything about evolution, uh, you are amazed about it. And uh, it's easy to say, well, this has all been created by somebody who uh, thought long about it. But uh, I see uh, my, my conclusion is, is if there was really somebody who has created this uh, earth and the human beings on it, then uh, he should take have taken a little bit more time than that one day and uh, would have done it better. Haley's watch analogy, if we're walking along the beach and we find this beautiful pocket watch and we see that it, you know, accurately um, uh, counts time and we open it up and we see how the gears and everything are all just so elaborately connected, we have to conclude there's a designer. And that's, yeah. that, that's the propensity that you're suggesting we as human beings yeah. have. But then... I, I think I missed, or you didn't answer, why we would have that evolutionary process in the brain. I mean, is that there just so we don't have to accept the fact that we're terminal, it gives us hope, or heals oh, yeah. our psychology, it, uh, or what? It, it, it has many reasons, I think. It's, uh, um, of course, it's um, uh, pleasant against the fear of, uh, of death. It's also... Um, giving a safe feeling that uh, somebody is guiding you as long as you keep to the rules. And it gives an explanation for disaster, because uh, God will punish uh, people that don't uh, uh, keep to the rules. It's, uh, it has many aspects that uh, make sense. Although, okay. of course, there's no proof whatsoever for it. I have to ask you on the personal side here. Now, clearly... If I'm to, you know, take what you're saying, you're an atheist. Were you yeah. raised in a religious family? Um, no, my my father was from origin Jewish, but not not religious. My mother, a Protestant, also not religious. So, the idea of there not being a creator was something that you were okay with as a youth. Yeah, yeah, but. Okay. Um, uh, I, I was free to believe whatever I wanted. So uh, if I would be convinced by, uh, uh, let's say, by school or uh, environment, uh, my fa- parents would not uh, um, uh, go against it. So uh, and The next obvious question, Professor, is, is there anything that, would convince you there was a creator? I mean, what would it take for you to say, okay, yeah, there's a creator? Because you're data-driven, that's obvious. You're a scientist. Yeah. What would it yeah. take? Yeah, yeah proof. <laughs> proof. <laughs> I, I can tell you that I was religious when I was uh, uh, eight years old or so uh, for a few weeks because I found out that there were two families in the street who were Catholic and they had many children eight and seven, and the rest of the uh, street was not Catholic, and they had only one or two children. So I thought this was the proof of uh, God. And, uh, well, after a few weeks, my father uh, told me about anticonception and uh, the problems of Catholics to use, etc. 
I see. So I need proof, yes. Okay. From the beginning, I needed proof. We, we have a hard break coming up. When we come back, I want to pursue with you um, other aspects of what you've uncovered in your 40 years of research in the evolution of the brain and how it impacts who we are. We're speaking with Professor Dick Schwab about his life and new book, We Are Our Brains, a neurobiography of the brain from the womb to Alzheimer's. It's a terrific read. Um, I really suggest you take a look at this book. Okay, we have a video for you today featuring our guest making the point that homosexuality is predetermined before birth. So you will want to join Ravinder in the chat room and see this one. If you're listening on the dial, remember you can check the chat room out when you're next in front of the computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Dick Swab about his life and new book, We Are Our Brains. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a new field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. All right, we just played some of Mozart's Requiem in D minor. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, Professor, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, it's, uh, for, for me, when I have a difficult period, a difficult day or so, uh, I must say I feel much better when I hear this. And, uh, of course, uh, it was also composed uh, for a uh, most difficult period, uh, the death of somebody, uh, and uh, to give some comfort. So I feel better when I hear it uh, in a difficult period. That's the reason. And Mozart is, of course, uh, having a lot of effects on our brain from the beginning onward. 
to give you an example, um, if uh, children that are born too early and they are too small for dates are put into an uh, um, uh, intensive care unit and they are exposed to Mozart, then the oxygenation of the blood is increasing, they are growing better, and they can go home uh, earlier. And the interesting thing is that Bach doesn't have the same effect. So for Bach, you should be a little bit more mature. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Now I understand that Mozart uh, had perfect tone and Bach didn't, but I'd never heard that association before. Well, it has an, a rhythm that is also uh, having a great impact on the brain. And, uh, for instance, uh, it is uh, used also against epileptic uh, activity in the brain. There are many effects of Mozart uh, found on the function of the brain. All right. While we're on that subject, you've worked with dementia patients, and there are a number of documented instances where patients suffering severe dementia, for all intent and purposes, so severe that they appear to be comatose. And yet when certain types of music, music that, you know, have been important to them, uh, has been important to them, was played, they would become fully lucid for a period of time, able in every way to communicate, remember, even sometimes get up and dance. What happens in the brain that turns active consciousness off and on like this? Yeah, uh, if if you look in the brain uh, during uh, music, and especially music that is liked by those persons uh, before, uh, then you see that it's... uh, activating many areas of the brain. So, of course, it's starting with the uh, circuits that are important for hearing, but then it's um, processed in many brain areas uh, after that. It's going to the brain stem. It's uh, going to our emotional centers. It's uh, affecting the reward uh, system, so uh, you feel uh, pleased uh, when you hear music that you like. And it's uh, even going to the motor cortex, so we can't sit still when we hear rhythmic music. Uh, And depending on the type of music, it's uh, affecting more or less uh, particular brain areas. So Mars Mars music uh, that is used in the military is uh, activating uh, um, heart rate, it's activating breathing, it's um, uh, so you, you are made uh, prepared for fighting by mass music, and uh, so it has a reason that the military uh, use this. That makes me think of the exaggerated marches that we see, uh, you know, from the Second World War and the, the German military. Uh, that exaggerated movement, does that somehow also emphasize or assist in building the aggression necessary for combat? Well, uh, I I think this is part of um, uh, bringing people so close together that they are uh, going to act as one uh, organism. Uh, And uh, uh, music can help, of course, a leader uh, that is inspiring can help, and common enemy can help. Uh, Mars music is uh, certainly also something that helps to uh, bring people together uh, into a group that uh, acts as a group and not as individuals anymore, with all the dangers, of course, of that. All right, that's very interesting. Okay, for our listening audience, it's not near their computer. We kind of left them dangling before the break. Regarding homosexuality, they didn't have the opportunity to see the film. Uh, Tell us, how is it, on what basis have you come to the conclusion, a controversial conclusion, by the way, that homosexuality is predetermined uh, in the brain? Well, in the first place, uh, uh, by twin studies, you can uh, determine the uh, proportion of genetic uh, uh, background, and that's about 50%. Then you don't know the genes, but you know that the genetic component is 50%. And uh, and then there are um, 
effects of uh, hormones like testosterone. Uh, there is an effect of uh, the number of brothers that is born before you. The more brothers that are born before you, the more risk for uh, or chance for, for homosexuality. And that's explained by the fact that uh, if the mother is uh, pregnant of a boy, the boy is producing proteins from the Y chromosome that the mother doesn't know. So those are strange proteins. And uh, she acts as if it is a virus or a bacterium making antibodies against it. And every pregnancy, again, this uh, process is stimulated and interfering with the sexual differentiation of the brain. So we know of the different um, uh, compounds and, and uh, components that uh, uh, cause sexual differentiation of the brain and uh, give the variability from homosexuality to uh, heterosexuality. And um, it's, um, uh, you can say that it is uh, quite accepted that uh, uh, you cannot um, induce or change sexual orientation after birth. Uh, now in America, for instance, uh, it's forbidden for psychiatrists to uh, be involved in trying to change homosexuality and heterosexuality. Um, and one observation is uh, very interesting in, uh, in uh, homosexual pairs that adopt children. The children are followed now for a long time, and they are doing very well. In psychological testing, they are doing better than the rest of the population, which is not so amazing because, of course, those parents were very much motivated to adopt uh, those children. But what is interesting is that uh, the chance for homosexuality is not increasing when uh, the parents are both homosexual. So even if you have an excellent example from the very beginning onward uh, in the environment, there's no change after birth. Which supports your idea of uh, the nature of this being something that is a pre-birth condition situation. But now have you done actually assembled data correlating uh, large families where there are five, six, seven, eight, nine boys and found that there is a positive correlation to support yes, the those theory? studies have been done. There are about uh, five extensive studies about this. And that broader effect uh, has been shown uh, again and again. So uh, in, in those large families, you see an increased uh, chance of homosexuality. But that's just so the, one, the, of the, one of the mechanisms so this basically becomes just a fact and at least based on the fact that we you understand what the mechanism is and it yes. is supported by way of going out into the world and actually observing that indeed that takes place in the larger families with more boys yeah and then of course uh, we have uh, um, found uh, differences in, in brains homosexual and heterosexual uh, men, um, which also indicate that early in development uh, uh, there is a an, uh, an, an different developmental process going on. What difference did you see in the brains? Oh, there are many differences now reported. Uh, it started with the difference we reported in the hypothalamus, and after that uh, also in America, uh, hypothalamic uh, Area. The hypothalamus is, is very important for sexual behavior. And uh, so we started to look there. But after that, there are also uh, findings in other parts of the brain. So uh, the brain and differences uh, are such that uh, they can only uh, um, develop early in development before birth. And this correspondence was in a respectable sample size. Yes, and in respect, uh, published in respectable uh, journals. Yes. Why is the issue so controversial then? I mean, it's controversial even with gays. I mean, if the data says this. Well, in, in some cases, I, I think not in most cases, because, um, uh, well, there is a kind of remnant from the 60s and 70s uh, which gives some people the idea that... Uh, 
uh, they have chosen to become homosexual. And the choice is called a political choice, or was called a political choice. And when I said, uh, this choice has been made for you in the womb, and I cannot see the political part of it, uh, a lot of people became angry. But I think it's now well accepted that uh, it's an early developmental process, uh, which is part of the variability. We are, all, we are all different in all aspects, also in our sexual orientation. And it goes from heterosexual to uh, homosexual, with uh, uh, bisexuality in between. And we are just put somewhere on this axis early in development, before birth. How does this work with transgenders, then, uh, Professor? Yeah, yeah, it's um, in, in fact uh, a similar uh, story, although uh, gender identity and sexual orientation are two different uh, processes, independent processes. But uh, uh, gender identity is also determined before birth. It's determined by uh, testosterone that is um, uh, made by the boy in the second half of pregnancy and influencing brain development in such a uh, way that uh, in uh, puberty or even earlier, uh, children are feeling that they are uh, male, that they are a boy. And if uh, testosterone is not produced uh, in the second half of pregnancy, then the brain is developing in female direction. But again, uh, there is variability in, in all the processes involved. And uh, since our sex organs are developing in the first two months of, uh, of pregnancy and the brain is sexually differentiating in the second half of pregnancy, those two processes can be influenced in a differential way. And that means that you can expect uh, in this uh, sense uh, female structures in male brains in uh, transsexual and the other way around. And that's what we also found. So sexual differentiation of the brain is reversed in, in uh, transsexual. And the changes we find in the brain um, are in agreement with how people uh, see their own gender identity. And they are not in agreement with uh, the birth certificate and the passport. So that's the problem. Mm. Let me ask you this. Uh, you know, not long ago, the president of Harvard uh, was asked to resign over making statements about the differences in male and female brains. He actually made a statement that the female wasn't as good at math and science because of anatomical differences, brain differences, uh, whether they were genetic or, or environmental, you know, uh, you distinguish differences between male and female brains. Are those differences, do they impact learning ability? Flesh that out for us, please. Well, they uh, certainly impact uh, interest. So uh, females have, uh, let's say, more interest in, in professions where care is involved. Males are more interested in, uh, in technical things. But, of course, there is overlap again. So this is true for the groups as such, but there is overlap between the groups. There is variability, again, in interest also. Mm -hmm. um, women are better in language. Um, and uh, if you look to uh, translators, uh, it's a female profession. And that's not only true in the, in the West, but also in uh, China, where I also work. And those men who uh, are uh, professional interpreters are for a high percentage homosexual. So there's also a relation uh, to that. So it's, uh, yeah, you should, uh, you only feel fine when you find a profession that uh, fits with the way the brain has developed. So it's based on interest. Well, okay, now here's something I've been involved in research and writing about, but you know, Utilizing fMRI, watching the brain lifetime, a technician will know what decision you're going to make when we give you choices, uh, A, B, C, D uh -huh. kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Six seconds or so, on average, before you consciously know what your decision is going to be. Right. Okay. Right. Now, that kind of, you know, <laughs> suggests that there is, 
you know, an operation going on that remediates the idea of free will. What's your take on free will? Well, I think it's a very pleasant illusion, free will. Say that one again. It is a pleasant illusion. <laughs> That's free what I will. thought you said, a pleasant <laughs> illusion. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, I also have the idea that I... Uh, make conscious decisions continuously in a logical way. But if you test this in a laboratory, you can see that the decision is made in the right part of the brain and uh, becomes only conscious uh, indeed between half a second and, and seven seconds later. And then the left part of the brain is making a logical story about it, which is sometimes true and sometimes not true. And the judge... Uh, who has to uh, uh, um, to investigate uh, a story of an uh, of an witness knows this that you can't trust witnesses. It's not because they lie, but uh, because they make a nice story out of uh, right. uh, parts of information that seems to be logical, but it doesn't necessarily has to be logical. Right, and sometimes it's a defense mechanism or uh, such that they remain hidden. It's just a BS story. Mm -hmm. It's a rationalization. Let me let yes. me ask you this then. Let's go to criminality. We have, you know, I mean, we're acting out of our unconscious. And, you know, part of this is genetic and part of it is perhaps hereditary or not hereditary, but environmental um, mm -hmm. nature, nurture kind of uh, context. When we look at criminality and understand that they're not making the kind of conscious decision that we yeah. typically want to hold someone culpable for, that this yeah. is really a program coming out of their unconscious what I mean, how should our jurisprudence system treat that? Well, um, some people say that if uh, free will doesn't exist, you cannot punish people. But I, I think that's the wrong conclusion. Because we are social animals. And society can only function when uh, we keep to the rules. And uh, even if you make an unconscious decision that is wrong, it should be made clear to you that this was a wrong decision and the next time we hope that the punishment will uh, uh, give some information that remains in the brain and will be calculated in an unconscious way the next time in order to uh, reduce the chance to repeat uh, the criminal act. So uh, because we are social animals, we should make clear to people uh, uh, that we can't accept uh, that they uh, don't keep to the rules. But uh, the big question then is uh, how can we best punish people? And I think that we have to learn a lot about that because um, uh, there is no evidence-based punishment in this world. So there are no uh, controlled experiments done on the question how can we best punish people such that uh, you can prevent it to happen the next time. And you know, then there is a, a big problem uh, when you look into prison, and that doesn't hold only in the Netherlands, but uh, certainly also in the United States. Um, some 90% of the prisoners have uh, um, psychiatric problems. They are patients, and they are punished, but they are not treated, or they are not uh, well treated. Right. Um, so this is another problem, that uh, because of the uh, uh, psychiatric uh, problems, uh, they are prone uh, to make a mistake and uh, get into uh, problems with judges. Um, and the question is, uh, can we uh, uh, deal with that in a different way? So it's, uh, it's, it's really a big problem. But I don't think that free will uh, is important here because uh, if even uh, um, people who are dealing with this uh, type of uh, criminality think that the law is based upon free will. I think the law is based upon the fact that we are social animals and we cannot accept that, that people uh, make problems for society. 
another one of the illusions that we live under. I yes, have worked in incarcerated environments, yes, and I many, think the only many. only thing yeah. you can do there is uh, a form of cognitive engineering. You know, you have to basically change that biocomputer so that what comes from the unconscious, the right hemisphere, yes, but gives them a different also decision. Changed by learning, of course. Eh? If you, right. uh, you you can learn, so you can uh, next time make a different decision in an unconscious right. way. Professor, we have about 30 seconds left, and in that 30 yeah. seconds, I really want you to be sure and let our audience know where they can get your book and how they can learn more about you. Well, uh, there is a penguin uh, pocket uh, in English, so that's easy to obtain. Um, All right. And and then I, I'm i just um, uh, in the end phase of uh, writing another book, uh, it will come out in the Netherlands, Our Creative Brain. That is the second uh, popular book about uh, the brain in relation to art and music, etc. Give uh, me a copy, would you? Being in Dutch. We're out of time, sir, and uh, I could take another couple of hours asking you the questions that I have here. Maybe we can get you back. The book, We Are Our Brains, A Neurobiography of the Brain from the Womb to Alzheimer's. I urge you to give this one a read. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.